The American people realize that this cannot be made a fight between America's two great political parties. If this fight against communism is made a fight between America's two great political parties, the American people know that one of those parties will be destroyed and the Republic can't endure very long as a one-party system. As the United States entered March 1954, U.S. officials announced a successful hydrogen bomb test, while four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire in the House of Representatives' chamber. Five were wounded. On March 9th, Edward R. Murrow's news team produced a CBS See It Now episode, a report on Senator Joseph McCarthy. They used excerpts from McCarthy's own speeches to point out his contradictions. Murrow and head of CBS News, Fred W. Friendly, pay for the program's marketing. CBS wouldn't allow the team to use the company logo. Good evening. Tonight, See It Now devotes its entire half hour to a report on Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, told mainly in his own words and pictures. Because a report on Senator McCarthy is by definition controversial, we want to say exactly what we mean to say. If the senator feels that we have done violence to his words or pictures and desires, so to speak, to answer himself, an opportunity will be afforded him on this program. If this fight against communism is made a fight between America's two great political parties, the American people know that one of these parties will be destroyed and the republic cannot endure very long as a one-party system. We applaud that statement and we think Senator McCarthy ought to. He said it. 17 months ago in Milwaukee. But on February 4th, 1954, Senator McCarthy spoke of one party's treason. The issue between Republicans and Democrats is clearly drawn. It has been deliberately drawn by those who have been in charge of 20 years of treason. Now the hard fact is that those who wear the label, those who wear the label Democrats, Worth with the stain of a historic betrayal. The broadcast provoked thousands of letters, telegrams, and phone calls to CBS headquarters. They ran 15 to 1 in favor of Murrow's sentiment. McCarthy went on the program to reject Murrow's criticism. He said, ordinarily, I wouldn't take time out from important work to answer Murrow. However, in this case, I feel justified, because Murrow is a symbol a leader, and the cleverest of the jackal pack that's always found at the throat of anyone who dares expose individual communists and traitors. The rebuttal served only to further decrease McCarthy's already fading popularity. However, his army hearings were set to convene on March 16th. They would help emphasize the fact that the United States of America, like the radio industry itself, was during this year in a state of turmoil. I remember uh, McCarthy accused Murrow of being a communist sympathizer. Sure. Of course, they had a running battle going on for a long time, and I remember Howard Hughes was called up before the House Un-American Activities Committee. I had some shows of that uh, and made to testify. That's where Hughes had the dramatic answer. And I, I forget the question, but there was very little hesitation, and he said, no, no, I don't think I will. Oh. That was the end of his testimony. I believe I, believe I do have that. that that's on Ed Murrow's here at now. Uh-huh. Unlike Howard Hughes, though, tonight, we'll talk about it.
Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 125. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we continue our miniseries in March of 1954. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Peggy Lee's version of Fever. It's a fitting song for the state of the times during the height of the Red Scare. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Everything is relative, and only in, in retrospect do you realize that. Exactly, exactly. People say, well, radio was really so much easier. But it wasn't really, Dick, because that was it. That was the medium at the time. That was the advertising medium. The pressures were there. And in many ways, radio was more difficult because you had only the one tool. You had only a voice to portray a character with. Whereas in a visual medium like television, everybody has their, their own preconceived idea of what somebody looks like, or what a lawyer looks like, or what, what a police chief should look like, or what a, what a hood or a gangster should look like, or what a sexy young girl or a matronly woman. In radio, we ran the gamut. You know, you played everything. Sure. And you had to do it all in your head and let it all come out through your voice. And you couldn't do that unless your character was right. Airing weekdays at 2.15 p.m. over WCBS in New York was Perry Mason. The show debuted on October 18, 1943. Mason was a crime-busting lawyer. It often featured the just-heard Mandel Kramer. On March 1st, Mason, who was voiced by John Larkin, and Della Street, voiced by Claudia Morgan, wondered who was behind an underworld syndicate. It's mid-morning, shortly after the close of our last episode. As Della Street enters the law library, Perry Mason is speaking on the phone. Yes, yes, that's right. Check it through, will you? And be sure to let me know. Hmm, right. That was Lieutenant Halverson. They've checked the moniker file. Mm-hmm. There are several dozen crooks known as Gus involved in car theft. Any or none of them might be the Gus tied up with the syndicate. So we'll have to find Suzanne Barkley before we can identify Gus, hmm? Unless we find the nerve center. What's that? Well, the syndicate is big business. It's got to have bookkeepers and auditors, a controller, a treasurer. It has to have men who hand out assignments to the boys and girls who actually steal the cars and another whole team of drivers to dispose of them. There has to be a headquarters. They they have to have a meeting place, a, a clearinghouse. Yes, the chief, I Della, don't... listen, suppose Della Street is 18 and reckless and you fall for the line Gus hands you. You go to work for him. As Sue Barkley did? Yes, just about. Okay, now you're working for Gus. You, uh, you steal a car for him, say, in Washington. Mm-hmm. And you deliver it here for redistribution. 
Okay, you have to be paid and get another assignment. Now, Gus could handle this over the phone, but it would be so much better if you have a safe place to meet your boss face-to-face. Then Gus can brief you on latest developments. And remember, they've got scores of people in this syndicate. So the clearinghouse must be a place where a number of people going in and out wouldn't attract attention. Preferably, it's close to a hot car drop where stolen cars are taken for alteration. Well, that could be a lot of places. Yeah. Well, I'll have to tell Mr. Wallace of this development. Give him an appointment. I'll check your desk, Alan. No, I'll do it. See. Fellow, what is this? You have written here... Tony's for dinner. And Tony's is the new nightclub where Kate Beekman has started to work, and I thought since her father asked us to look it over to see what kind of place it is. Yes, I understand. Did you make reservations? I wouldn't dream of making plans without you, Counselor. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll make the reservations right now. After you phone, Mr. Wallace. Well, as you know, the syndicate does have a clearinghouse, a secret meeting place. That place is the new nightclub where Kate Beekman is working and where Kate herself is in imminent danger. For unknown to Kate's parents or to Perry Mason, Kate's boss is Gordon Wemper. Now in Gordy's office. Yeah? Gus, I didn't ask you to come in. I'm sure you did. Look, don't tell me what I said. You told me to come in when my boys picked up the first batch of cars. My boys have got the first batch of cars, so here I am and here's the worksheet. You forget how fast I work, Gordy. You just started. The cars are in the garage. The mechanics will have them repainted and the serial numbers altered by tonight and we'll ship them out for delivery. Uh, It's okay for a start. All right, beat it, Gus. I got things to do. If you mean assigning drivers to deliver the heaps, I made your schedule. Yeah? Yeah. Here. And if you mean getting the boys and girls together for a meeting, that's all taken care of. I passed the word. And if you mean the uh, estimate of expenses J.T. always wants to see, I fixed that, too. Did I do wrong, Gordy? Wrong? You don't care if I took it on myself to fix up those little details? Care? Me? Gus, I'm glad you did. Huh? Yeah, I want you to take care of the details. That's fine, Gus. Keep it up. You'll save me time. What was that? Well, I can't uh, give you details, Gus. J.T. says keep it on my hat, but I can tell you. J.T.'s given me a special job to do for him. So the more time you save for me, the more time I'll have for J.T.'s special job. Oh. Oh, and Gus, in case you got the idea, you can stall. So I won't have time for J.T.'s job. Don't. Or I'll have to tell J.T. you aren't pulling your weight so I can't do his job for him. You know how J.T. feels about a pet idea. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Too bad uh, J.T. and me don't want to let you in on it. I'll see you, Gordy. Yeah, one more thing. Miss Fasina. Hmm? Oh, the girl who's in charge of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I understand you went to see her last night. Now, that's okay, Gus. Do me a favor. Keep it up. I'm going to be so busy I won't have time for Tony. A special job, eh? Yeah, that's it. So, uh, look out for her, will you, pal? I mean, Miss Fasina. The girl who's in charge of entertainment. And, Gus, remember. Leave the rest of the help alone. Referring to Kate Beekman? Her and the rest of them, except Tony. Now, get out. Oh, Gus. Yeah? Report back at two this afternoon. Sure. Oh, hello, Gus. Well, if it isn't Miss Fasina, who's in charge of entertainment. Huh? I want to talk to you. 
We've got nothing to talk about. Yeah, you've got something to tell me. Oh, no. And I've got something to tell you. Well, we can go in the cocktail lounge. I don't like cocktail lounges. Yeah, I'll get the door. Yeah, we got the joint to ourselves. You, um, got something to tell me? Yeah. You're a sucker, Tony. What? I offered you a bona fide proposition last night. I offered to help you if you'd put in the good word for me with Gordy. And what happens? You told him I came to see you. Sure I did. That wasn't smart, Tony. What do you think you're kidding, big boy? You said put you in solid with Gordy. That'd be good for you and good for me. Because that'd leave him with more time with you. Yeah. And you said it'd help Gordy, which is what you want. Gordy told me about you, handsome. He says you'd do anything to stab him in the back. He's only half right, Tony. Look, I'm going to level with you. Skip it. Cards on the table, Tony. This is what I couldn't tell you before. Oh, you trust me now. Yeah, because you've got to trust me. I know what's going on. I know what's eating you. Gordy and that redhead. I didn't say... You don't have to. Gordy told me. What? Oh, he didn't mean to. But I'm a boy who can add two and two and come up with the right answer. Look, let's take it in order, kid. Gordy's half right, but only half right. The only thing I want is to get out from under his thumb, and I'll do it any way I can. If you think I'm going to help you... You can help me in a way that won't hurt Gordy. At least not much. Now, Gordy told you he's got no time for you now. He says it's because he's got to get chummy with the redhead. He told you it's a business deal, right? I'm not saying. Well, it's supposed to be a secret. But Gordy's a lad who has to talk. You know he's got a boss. You know this is more than a nightclub. Well... I know you know. Because I know Gordy has to talk. Just like he had to tell me what he told you. He has to throw his weight around and act like a big Look, guy. I'm not going to sit here and let you knock Gordy. Look, how you feel about Gordy is your business. But it fits real cozy with my business. Because you want Gordy. And you'll help me in order to get him. What? You don't stand a chance once he starts after that redhead. Gordy said... Yeah, yeah, he said it's business. But you know Gordy, too. Now, here's my ace. Was Gordy mad when you told him I came to see him? Well, yeah, he, he hit the ceiling. Huh. Don't make me laugh. He didn't care, right? And here's my other ace. Gordy went so far as to ask me to take you off his hands. He didn't. That's just talk, kid. You know I'm telling you the truth. Gordy's slipping away from you. Are you uh, just going to let him slip away, or uh, you're going to fight back my way? I don't want anything to happen to Gordy. Now, look. What if I fix it so Gordy keeps his job, keeps operating the club? And what if I fix it so he lets the redhead alone? So he'll go out of his way to keep from speaking to her? You like that, Tony? You can't fix that. The big boss told Gordy. Unless he's lying. If Gordy's lying... That's our race in the hole, kid. The big boss did tell him to get friendly with Kate Beekman. The big boss has plans for her. How do you know? Because I know how he operates. I know him better than Gordy. Gordy used to work for me. Look, kid, all we have to do is make the big boss see Gordy's not the guy to make with Beekman. You get it? Yeah, but... All the big boss wants is results. He doesn't care who gets her confidence. When he sees Gordy can't do it, he'll turn it over to me. But how? How? <laughs> That's the fourth ace, Tony. That's the simplest thing of all. If you'll help. Will you? You, uh, promise Gordy won't get hurt? Only a little bit. I mean, the boss will be disappointed, but since I'm here and ready to take over, it won't signify. Now, let me tell you something. Before you give me your answer, this business is like a ladder. 
Gordy's up the ladder ahead of me. If I can't get past him the easy way, I'm going to kick him all the way off. He might kick you off. Maybe. But it'll be a real dogfight. Unless you help me. Now, what do you say, Tony? I, uh, I wish I knew what you were going to do. Do? <laughs> I'm just going to show the big boss I'm the man to get friendly with Kate Beekman, that's all. Until now, Kate Beekman has not been directly involved in the struggle for power within the syndicate. But in the very near future, Kate herself will be involved directly and dangerously. By all means, join us tomorrow, won't you? While Perry Mason's directors were men like Carlo D'Angelo and Carl Eastman, women were as likely to be in the midday director's chair as men. They often exuded confidence that put fear into young radio actors. Another name that actors will remember, certainly, a woman by the name of Martha Atwell, who directed a great many of the daytime uh, dramatic shows for Blackett, Sample, and Hummer, Air Features. But she was literally unapproachable. She was a lovely lady, as I found out later, but no one approached her. I mean, on the third floor, when this lady walked by, nobody approached her because she was very aloof and she, was that, she could just, you know, destroy you with a look. Later on, I found out that, you know, you, you never speak to her, you just don't. But in going, I didn't know this at the time. You know, fools rush in. <laughs> That's right. And I had this list of names of people who directed these shows, and I saw Martha Atwell. And look at all the shows she directs. Well, I did what, what seemed the only normal, natural thing to do. I looked up Martha Atwell in the New York telephone directory, and I called her. At I'm, home. At home. <laughs> I swear to you, this is the truth. I called her at home, and I introduced myself to her on the phone. And I think... She was so amused, really, by my complete naivete that I had the incredible effrontery to do this, you know. And I said, I'm new in New York, and I understand that you direct the show, the show and the show, and I would like very much to read for you, you know, if that's at all possible. I don't know what her reaction was, except I can only think that she must have been terribly amused because she said, you come to NBC tomorrow, a studio, whatever it was, uh, at such and such a time. I said, thank you very much. And I didn't. I, I thought, that's the way you do it. Mm -hmm. So I went. I was there. And I waited until the rehearsal broke. And I went in. And here was this lady. And I introduced my... I said, I'm Mandel Kramer. I spoke to you on the phone. And uh, she said, let me hear you read this. And she handed me a script. I think it was a character called Bluey Masters or something. It was <laughs> a gangster. And I read about three lines for her. And she said, all right, are you available for whatever the show was next week? Was I available? <laughs> and I'll tell you something. I worked for this lady on and off for 20 years. And, you know, she always cast me as that same part. No matter what the name was, it was of the character, it was always Bluey Masters. I always <laughs> came in, and it was always, all right, buddy, hand it over now. You know, it's funny, though. You know, fools rush in, I guess. As you know, Perry Mason is fighting a huge crime syndicate. But big as it is, the syndicate is cloaked in secret. Kate Beekman doesn't know the nightclub where she works is the local syndicate headquarters and meeting place. She doesn't dream she is a stake in the hidden battle between two powerful syndicate members, Gordon Weber and August Jansen. No, Kate doesn't suspect. 
any more than do most of the club employees. For example, Monsieur Bolin, head chef. Chef Bolin is a thoroughly honest and very capable man. His first concern is his beloved kitchen. He's absolute monarch of his kitchen kingdom. And because he's a wise ruler, he has a moment for his most humble subject. Ah, Mademoiselle Kate. Oh, Mr. Bolin, I... I've just been standing here watching and trying to keep out of the way. Yes, I've watched you watch. Well, I guess I should have found something to do, but I, I, I checked the menu. <laughs> it's all right, Mademoiselle Kate. You watch, you learn, good. But now uh, there is something you can do. Uh, come with me, please. Uh, we go in the headwaiter's office where you will answer the telephone and list the reservations. It will not be long. Carl is having a little meeting with his waiters. Uh, sit here, mademoiselle. Now, here is the telephone and the card. List the name, the number in the party, and... You listen once while I answer, yes? Yes? Uh, oui, monsieur. And how many? Quatre, merci. Merci, monsieur Browning. Now, you see. The name... The number in his party, and then put the card in the little box for Carl, you see? Yes, sir. Good. Now I have something to tell you, Mademoiselle Kate. I have decided to let you learn to check the food. Mr. Bowman, Mr. Weber said... Uh, please. Mr. Weber is boss, yes, but he is not boss in the kitchen. Here, I am boss. Oh, yes, Mr. Weber says, I wish Mademoiselle Kate to be a food checker. But I make the final decision. Now I have decided you can learn. Thank you, Mr. Bowen. You are welcome, Mademoiselle Kate. I will return in a moment. All right. Tony? I'd like to make a reservation for opening night, please. Hello? Yes, ma'am. How many in your party, please? Two, and we'll want dinner. Kate? Ma'am? Am I speaking to Kate Beekman? This is Della Street. Oh, Miss Street. I thought I recognized your voice. How are you, honey? Oh, I I'm fine, thank you, Miss Street. Do you like your job? Oh, yes, especially parts of it. Well, I don't have any one job. I, I work for Mr. Bolin and for the entertainment manager. Who's Mr. Bolin? Oh, Miss Tree, he's so nice. Oh, young and handsome? <laughs> no, he's older than my father. <laughs> Which makes him ancient, of course. <laughs> well, not exactly, but he is nice. He's chief chef, and he's going to teach me to be a food checker. Oh, oh, just a second. Get on the other line, Perry. I'm speaking to Kate. Mr. Mason just came in the office. Hello, Kate. Hello, Mr. Mason. Well, how's it going? Oh, just, just fine, thanks. Well, well. Did you get our reservations, Ella? Kate's taking it for me. Good. Well, then we'll see you opening night, Kate. Well, I, I, I'm afraid you can't, Mr. Mason. Uh, oh, oh, you'll be busy? Kate, you just said you could see us. Well, I, I could, I guess, but I, I can't give you a reservation. Oh, Mademoiselle Kate. Oh, what did you say, Kate? Oh, just, just what I said, Mr. Mason. Well, I, well, why can't you give me a reservation? Now, I own a dress suit. And I have a new evening dress. Excuse me, Miss Street. Did you want to speak to me, Mr. Bowen? No, no, I will wait. Uh, yes, sir. Well, Kate? Well, I, I, I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Mason. 
Well, why? Uh, don't you want us to come out? Oh, no, it isn't that, but, um, there aren't any more reservations. Mademoiselle Kate. People have been calling and calling, and, well, there just aren't any more reservations. But, Mademoiselle Kate. Uh, golly, Mr. Mason, you and Miss Street are friends of mine, and if I could get you a reservation, I could, but well, if there's a cancellation, I'll let you know. I'll let you know the very first thing. Well, all right, Kate. I'm sorry, Mr. Mason, but... No, no, don't worry about it. Goodbye, Kate. Goodbye, Miss Street. Mr. Boland. Yes? <laughs> you had best explain, Mademoiselle Kate. Well, I... I guess I'd better explain. Uh, don't you think so? It... It's a secret, Mr. Boland. Well, perhaps you will tell me the secret. Only I don't know if... If you can trust me with this great secret. <laughs> I'm a man of trust, Mademoiselle Kate. Yes, sir. I believe you are. Mr. Mason is a friend of my father and mother. He's Mr. Perry Mason. Mm, the man of law. Yes, I know. Mr. Mason knows Mr. Weber. If Mr. Mason came here and saw Mr. Weber, Mr. Mason would know I work for Mr. Weber. And? And Mr. Mason would tell my father who the manager is. My father knows Mr. Weber. My father wouldn't let me work here if he knew Mr. Weber's the manager. Uh, Papa is not en rapport with Mr. Weber? Uh, if that means Pa doesn't like Mr. Weber, no, he doesn't. Uh, Papa has a reason, but of course. Yes. And uh, Maman, uh, she feels the same? Yes, sir. Well, uh, what is it with Mr. Weber? Can you tell me? Only, well, only that something a long time ago... Pa and Ma don't like Mr. Weber. They, they'd make me quit my job if they knew. Oh, then why do you wish to work here if Papa and Mama... Oh, Mr. Bolin, I had to have a job. And this job is a chance to learn. I wanted to be a dancer. I studied for years, but I was in an accident. I can't dance anymore, but at least I can work around dancers. I can learn to work in the entertainment business. But your mother and I'll father... I'll be all right, Mr. Bolin. Mr. Weber isn't interested in me. I, I don't know. It isn't as if I were here all by myself. But what have you just done? It's only a matter of time. Mr. Mason will come some other time. I'll make sure it's a time when Mr. Weber isn't here. But Papa and Mama, what if they come here? They can't. My father's on parole from prison. He can't visit a nightclub. Please, Mr. Boland, I'm sorry I had to lie to Mr. Mason. And to your parents. It is a lie when you keep the truth a secret. Uh, perhaps it would be better if you did not work in this place. Oh, Mr. Boland, Mr. Weber isn't interested in me. Uh, All right, Katie. What, Mr. Weber? Carl's through with his meeting. Now you can come in my office. But I... I... But this is the boss talking, Katie. Don't argue with the boss. I want to see in my office. Oh, uh, say, Mr. Bolin. Yes? You know, you got us some free advertising? One of the columnists mm. mentions you're going to be in charge of the kitchen for us. That'll mean at least 35, 40 additional reservations. Uh, Mr. Weber. Huh? Mademoiselle Kitt is needed here. I had something else for her to do when Carl arrives. Oh, yeah? Now, listen, chef, I don't have to... Yes, Mr. Weber... You are going to tell me? <laughs> I know better than to tell you anything. Not here in your own kitchen. All right, I'll put it this way. 
Get this, Kate. This is the boss asking favors of the help. Okay, Mr. Boland, I'm asking you to send Katie to my office. Oh, but no, monsieur. Maybe you didn't understand, chef. I want Please. I decide I want Mademoiselle Kate to work here with me in the kitchen. Now, you understand? I ought to tell you to... <sighs> what are we getting all upset for? Okay, okay. Chef, have it your way. I'll see you some other time. Thanks, Mr. Bowen. <laughs> that time, I could help. Here in my kitchen, I can watch as your papa would watch. But as that little man just said, there will be other times when I cannot watch. Well, Kate Beekman has gained a friend. Chef Bolin is a friend. And as we're going to learn, Kate is going to need every bit of help she can get. Because Kate is on the brink of danger. Be sure to hear tomorrow's important development. In 1954, Mason's cast had greatly expanded. On radio, he was as much a detective as a lawyer. Incidentally, you know, nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's. And you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work and did work seven days a week. The version Raymond Burr played on TV was markedly different. The radio version of Perry Mason ran until December 30th, 1955. Mandel Kramer could then be seen starring in The Edge of Night. Our guest is Mandel Kramer here on The Golden Age. <laughs> the Golden Age of Radio. Golden hey, how about that? Go. Got a new name for the show. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw a plug in there for you. <laughs> Who is known as Bill Marceau on Edge of Night, of course, the police chief. Incidentally, how did you uh, arrive at that role? Was Bill Marceau introduced on the program as the police chief? You didn't work your way up? No, he started you? out as a lieutenant. Oh, he did? And then he became a captain. And now I'm the chief, and I just hope they don't make me the commissioner because he's never seen. <laughs> we just talk about the commissioner. You might mention how that show got started. Uh, I never knew this until you told me about it at lunch. Yes, we were talking. Actually, we, we were talking about about, about the transition uh, about, from uh, when and, you were doing, doing radio. Perry Mason and Johnny radio. Larkin and I were doing the Perry Mason radio show. Johnny was playing Perry Mason, and I was doing Lieutenant Tragg as a daytime radio show. Then back in. Uh, well, I guess it was 56, they decided that they would put uh, Perry Mason on as a half-hour daytime dramatic show. 
At this point, all the uh, dramatic shows had been 15-minute shows. Right. Edge of Night and As the World Turns were the first two half-hour dramatic shows. Ultimately, some of the shows that started out as 15-minute shows, like uh, Search, Guiding Light, and there may have been one or two others, went half-hour. But we were the first to start out as half-hour shows. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The original plan was to put Perry Mason on as a half-hour dramatic melodrama. Well, as I understand it, I hope my facts are straight, they had some problems with Earl Stanley Gardner in arranging for the kind of negotiating, the kind of release that would be necessary in order to uh, put Perry Mason on. Obviously, they were unable to resolve those problems, whatever they were, so they decided that they would do that kind of a format, but change the names. And instead of it being Perry Mason, it became the Edge of Night. Instead of the character being Perry Mason, the criminal lawyer, he was Mike Carr. And Lieutenant Tragg became Bill Marceau. That's pretty much how it came about, how the idea of the show came about, because we are really the only daytime show that is really melodrama. That's most, right. That's most right. of the daytime shows are family things, you know. But we're really melodrama. I mean, uh, in a way, I'm still doing cops and robbers, though I'm on the other side of the, uh, of the fence now. And we have a lot of action, and we have a lot of mystery, and we have a lot of whodunit going on. 